Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Lisa Marciano. Marciano is a mother of two children. She's also a union analyst and a host of the podcast called This Union Life. She brings together these experiences in her new book, Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself. It's a fascinating and deeply insightful book that draws on the universal wisdom of fairy tales and myths to illuminate how motherhood offers mothers a rich opportunity for psychological exploration and growth. And the wonderful thing about Marciano's approach is that she fully recognizes that this opportunity comes amid all sorts of struggles, from spilled juice to adolescent outbursts to the complicated and sometimes ugly feelings that mothers experience. Her book recognizes and names these difficulties and shows how they might, in the end, lead to unexpected riches. Lisa, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you're here, and I'm looking forward to talking about your new book, Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself. And I guess I, I want to start right at the the core, I guess. You know, when when I became a parent, um, when people become parents, or, or probably at many points along the journey, we look for a little guidance. And, you know, it used to be you go to a bookstore, but now you might punch motherhood into Amazon and the, the number of books, the amount of advice um, that we can find out there. Um, is just immense and maybe even overwhelming. Uh, and so so here is this new book on motherhood, which I'll just, to give away, read straight through. I think it's wonderful. But I am curious, what need did you see out there that this book fulfills? Well, I couldn't agree with you more about the overwhelming number of books and websites and resources. And of course, on the one hand, it's wonderful to have all those resources, but in another way, it can be confusing or it can sometimes uh, make us doubt ourselves because our instincts are telling us to do one thing, but this program that we saw on Instagram is telling us to do another. So I think that that's a difficult situation for parents. I really didn't want to write a parenting book about how to parent. I wasn't interested in that. Not that I don't think that trying to be a better parent is a worthwhile endeavor. I still try to figure out how to be a better parent. But I was really interested in the experience that I was having. So I first got the idea for this book when my daughter was two and my son had just been born. And I was so in the weeds with it. And it was so difficult. And I I had this this thought, you know, it's like everything about parenting is so difficult. And then this voice kind of made itself known and said, yeah, but I'm changing so much as a result. And it was this idea that this process of being a mother and going through this was actually uh, impelling me towards psychological growth that I found really interesting. And I don't think that much has been written about. There, There are some really good books on the subject, but in general, that's not the focus of most parenting books. 
No, I think a lot of them are in that great American genre of the how-to. And then there's a, a, a kind of maybe collective awakening from some holdout Eisenhower vision of what mothering should be, you know, this great personal fulfillment that now it seems more and more mothers are are willing to talk about just how hard and how devastating it can be. Um, but there's something beautiful about that turn to, you know, in that, in that devastation or disintegration as a possible of, of putting oneself together or finding oneself more mm -hmm. deeply. Yes. Yes. And of course I'm a Jungian analyst and this book is really based on the psychology of Jung. And he talks about that. He had this notion of individuation, by which he meant something a little different than what we might think that word is referring to. He was really talking about the lifelong process of the development of the personality. So getting to know yourself better and better and becoming the fullest version of yourself possible. And it doesn't happen uh, because life is easy and everything is going swimmingly. You know, any difficult experience requires us to confront ourselves. And motherhood can be difficult. And it does require that kind of self-confrontation that always gives rise to rich psychological treasure. Could, could you take us a little bit more deeply into this model or this vision of being being a person. Um, so the subtitle, right, facing and finding yourself, it presupposes already a narrative that's in there that, that we probably mm -hmm. aren't facing ourselves mm -hmm. and we're probably lost. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing to suddenly confront in a subtitle. Wait a second. You know, I didn't realize that, that I was not transparent to myself and I thought I was navigating, but of course, you know, Lost would be the least uh, aggressive term I would use when I first became a parent. <laughs> well, I, I think in some sense, Jung might say we're always facing and finding ourselves. We're always getting lost and then coming back to center. And there's always more and more of ourselves to discover. Jung said that the goal of the process of, individu of individuation was wholeness, not perfection. There's no, there's no finish line. There's no, okay, now I've done everything just right, but there's becoming more and more whole, which means getting to know your negative qualities as well as your positive qualities. So there's, there's always more to learn. There's, there's some, I just want to, you'll know this when I say it, but there's this beautiful line you quote of like the purpose of life is to get defeated by greater and greater mm. beings, mm -hmm. which is so un-American and so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a real yeah. guy. Rilka, that's right. Yes. Um, well, let's talk. So, you know, somebody who might have a passing familiarity with Jung might know it through, you know, the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell and the way that mm -hmm. that's been pulled into a lot of, you know, popular storytelling. Um, your book is not the hero's journey. You talk about the mother's journey. And in fact, the whole book is structured according to this journey. Could you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about, you know, either how the the structure of the book manifests that journey or its nature? 
you know, what, what is the journey one takes when one undergoes becoming a mother or the invitation to a journey? Well, the way I imagined it is that it's a journey down. It's a journey inward. And, and so it's, it's not the sort of bright solar journey of the hero, although the hero's journey does in, in some moments require a going inward or a going down. But in uh, fairy tales that feature female heroines, there often is a journey down. So there's something about the feminine that requires a kind of inward looking or an inward going or a journey into the underworld. And in the case of this book, I've imagined it as a journey down the well. So that uh, we, we leave ordinary consciousness, we, we leave our ordinary life in some way, and we have this journey inward and downward, which sometimes might be dark, but then we return with treasure. And I, I see this as an arc that may recur again and again and again. You might have that arc over the span of a couple of hours one day while you're, while you're mothering. You might find yourself going into a dark mood. Maybe it's a day when you're hungry or tired or lonely or you're feeling dissatisfied with your life in some way and you find yourself getting into a darker and darker mood and then maybe you find yourself snapping at your children in a way that you really don't like. And this causes you to have to think about what's going on for you. It it pulls you up short to see yourself getting angry at your kids. And so it invites self-reflection and that's the return with the riches is the, the, the boon that we gain when we go through a process of self-reflection. So I can imagine someone listening, or I can imagine me listening and being like, okay, I'm at mm -hmm. that moment, right? I've, I've cracked, I've flipped out at something that was just, you know, developmentally natural in what my child was doing, but mm -hmm. I was at the end of the rope. Um, you know, and, and there's that like, ah, oh. or maybe there's, there's just even the, the capacity for further rage, for doubling down mm -hmm. on your anger oh, or your depression yeah. or whatever it turns out to be. Um, and one of the things that's beautiful about the, some of the stories that you share in this, and I certainly want to talk about the storytelling, um, is that, that down at the bottom of the well, things don't always go well. There, are, there's mm -hmm. moments that the the heroines on this journey have to make a choice, and I'm just curious as you know, to someone who's taken the journey, continues to take it, and helps other people through it in your practice. What do you see? I'm at the bottom of the well, Lisa. What do I do? <laughs> well, I think the, the first thing, and and one of the one of the gifts I really hope that readers get from my book is to find self acceptance and self compassion. So many mothers and and fathers too, presumably, when they get in a bad mood and they find themselves yelling at their kids, are so distraught that they really come down hard on themselves and and self-flagellate and sometimes really catastrophize. You know, I, I've heard parents say things like, well, you know, I, I told my son that he couldn't have an iPhone and I've really worried that I've traumatized him. 
I'm like, no, no, let's just hold up a minute. You know, we're, we're all more resilient than that. Uh, being angry is uncomfortable and messy, and it's also very human and natural. And the first thing that we need to do before we change anything, the first thing we need to do is accept it. So that means if we want to change our behavior, we first have to accept it and accept it with compassion and curiosity. So if when someone is in my office, this happens not infrequently, and they're saying, you know, I'm the worst mother in the world, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I did this terrible thing, and I've screwed my kid up, which, you know, you'd be surprised at how many women carry that, (laughs) or maybe you wouldn't, but a lot of women walk around with those concerns in one way or another. And the first thing I'll, I'll do is sort of, well, you know, a little reality testing. Did, did, did you really traumatize your child because you told him that he couldn't have an iPhone? Let's think about that for a minute. And, and then, and then it's like, well, and, and so what's going on with you that this hit you so hard and in this way, where is this resonating with you? This sense of, of deprivation or lack and can we get curious about what's going on with you? Can we face whatever's going on with you with compassion? Even if you, uh, you know, did something, uh, let's say that you exer- exercise really poor judgment and, and you let your kid, I don't know, play with scissors that were really sharp and the kid hurt himself. You know, and and I've had mothers come in and just feel kind of racked with guilt years afterwards for something like that. And it's like, okay, okay, so you 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 made a poor judgment call. Can can we be compassionate about that? One of the things that I love about Jung's psychology is that it makes room for all of us. So there's a sense of self acceptance that we start with. And, and then we can move toward whatever we've done with sort of loving curiosity, which uh, makes it much easier to have a relationship with this thing and to learn from it because we're not judging ourselves all the time. I love how it comes across again and again in the book that, that a kind of curiosity even towards things that are perhaps frightening in yourself or disturbing in yourself, um, comes to be a, a way in, a way of opening it. You know, can I can I get curious about this thing, which is mm-hmm. very different from moving to you know self judgment or self flagellation about this thing. Um, yeah, and and again to go back to your first point, I think it's very different than the parenting how to books, which ultimately say there is a right way to handle this, and the implication of that is if you do it differently, you've done it wrong. And so, although there are many wonderful parenting books out there, and I probably couldn't have survived without them, and I, I'm not trying to uh, sweep the whole genre off the table. But it does invite a certain amount of judgment of ourselves. Oh, sure. And I think that one of the things I noticed when I became a parent is is judging other people's parenting becomes like a new sport that I did not know existed. Yeah. And so <laughs> certainly there's, there's cultural pressure, um, not just internal pressure or internalized pressure in that regard. That is so true. I love, mm-hmm. I love that you said that, but it is so true. It's so 
uh, tantalizing to judge someone else's parenting. And of course, you know, I've been on the other end of that too. Yeah, it, it seems just so counterproductive that I, you know, I just had the kind of what's happening, what's happening. Um, so I'm wondering if you, if you want to tell us a little bit, there's this union term called the shadow that seems to be, I'm not sure if metaphor is the right word or figure or way of thinking about a lot of, of what we've been addressing. Um, and do you find that useful for people? Is that a way for them to kind of understand it in a more direct and tactile way? You know, as somebody who's a writer, I often find myself thinking like, what can the, the work of this image do um, that maybe other things can't? And I found mm. myself as, as you returned to it in the book thinking, you know, what do, what do unions get by, by talking about the shadow that they, they might miss by talking about, you know, what we don't notice or, you know, any kind of analytic equivalent for that. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it was a term that Jung used. And so in some sense, uh, you know, we're, we Jungians are, are saddled with it, mm. <laughs> but, but I do think it's a lively metaphor that a lot of people can resonate with. Jung's idea of the shadow is that as we grow and develop, we learn from our culture, our parents, our teachers, what aspects of self are to be valued and can be on display unambivalently and which parts of ourself are not so welcome and we need to disavow or hide and the parts that you need to hide that's your shadow so it might be something like aggression or sexual desire or some kind of obvious candidates but it can also be other things that maybe your family uh, maybe you were raised by two parents who were accountants and they felt distrustful of anything creative. And so you learned, you know, not to trot out your creativity, for example. So that might be something that would be in the shadow that you would discover later. There's a lot of Jungian literature around shadow that some people may be familiar with. And so my hope is that for those people, this term calls up this whole other body of work. But in any case, I think it plays a really important role in parenting because as I talk about, first of all, sometimes your kids will carry your shadow meaning that the parts of yourself that you don't want to know about, you'll wind up seeing those in your kid. And I can give you a little example. Um, I've always been very identified with academic achievement. And that's a, been a real conscious value for me. And the it's, it's opposite, essentially, is in the shadow. Like, who cares? You know, I don't want to play this stupid game. I will always play that academic game. I think it's just, just, uh, it's just very much part of my personality at this point. But I have the opposite. It's just in the shadow. My kids, I, I am chagrined to admit, have really acted out that shadow piece. Not that they're terrible students, but they certainly don't care as much about it as I do. And uh, that's very confronting. I don't like that. I don't like seeing that my kids aren't as motivated by grades, for example, as I was. So that's that's how our kids will wind up carrying our shadow. And, and this is a thing that happens very, very often is that kids will live out a parental shadow. 
So it's a real opportunity to get to know yourself. Like when I see my kids, you know, kind of blowing things off a little bit or not being too concerned, you know, at at first it just makes me like enraged and maybe scared and all kinds of other uncomfortable feelings. But then I can think, okay, so what is there in this for me to learn about myself? I mean, maybe I have to make some parenting interventions around, you know, how we as a family are dealing with academics, right? But that's kind of a separate issue. I'm saying in terms of my psychological growth, what can I learn from the fact that I'm getting so activated by seeing my kids live out this shadow piece? And is there something there for me to claim? Is there something there for me to integrate? Like really, really? has it changed my life that I was a top student? Why has that been so important to my sense of self? And what would happen if I let that go? What would I be left with? So these are the kinds of questions that we can feel into when we see our child living out our shadow. That's really beautifully said. And I, th- I it brings me to a question that I'm, I'm excited to to pitch to you, which is, okay, so I see you just articulated so powerfully what that might mean for for me as an opportunity to grow as a parent, as kind of deep in my own sense and awareness. But this dynamic of one's child somehow having to, to live out the shadow self of a parent sounds pretty awful right? Like they are saddled with that which we can't bear to look and see in ourselves. And then so mm-hmm. in some way, the what might be the alternative, some sort of freedom of agency and choice instead of existing gets eliminated. And, you know, not only do they have to live out the shadow, but if you don't do the shadow work, then they are saddled with your acrimony for doing so oh you know it just seems like this horrible situation um so if you shift the the focus of attention from or if you take let's just go back to your example like what then is the right intervention or a way of thinking about your child as the center of this dynamic um to free them from the shadow right like it you know or if, if somebody just said to you, Lisa, doesn't that mean, you know, your kids are not going to have drive because you you saddled them with your inability to relax and take a break, um, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see where you're going. And, and first of all, I want to say that I think that free will is uh, an illusion. And, <laughs> and also this illusion that if we parent perfectly – we will create these children who can blossom into this preordained sense of some image of perfection. You know, that's, that's not actually how it works. There's this really complicated process by which we influence our children. And, and I think, you know, thank God, thank God we influence our children. And of course, not every way we influence our children is, is desirable, and, and yet somehow it's all part of the messy thing that's supposed to happen. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing the question and I want to say that one of the things that I think is, well, well let me just back up a little bit and say, I, I want to normalize this so that people don't freak out and feel like they have to have 
uh, sanitized psyches before they can have kids. You know, it's like you're going to mess your kids up somehow and it'll be okay because we're, we're all messed up and that that's what makes us interesting people. I mean, you, you've got to give them something to talk about in therapy. <laughs> but, um, but, but seriously, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, welcome to being human. This is, this is how it is. And uh, is it always perfect or how we would have wished? Maybe no, but maybe it's also the way it's supposed to be. However, um, you know, I'll say that, you know, it, it is true that oftentimes kids will pick up just exactly that thing that is the opposite from what the parents most value. You know, that is, mm-hmm. I think we can all recognize that that often happens. And in in my case, for example, the more work I do on myself around that, perhaps the less they will have to carry it. So that's the per- the potential here to improve the parenting relationship. Although again, you know, even though I think that thinking in this way that I do in the book might help you be a better parent, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying, well, you've got to do your shadow work so that you can be a good parent. You see what I'm saying? It it kind of always doubles back on itself. Doing the shadow work is good for you because it helps you grow into a fuller person. Now, might that help your kids? Yeah, it might. But I, but uh, the kind of subjectivity of mother is so often occluded by this demand that we parent perfectly that I really want to de-emphasize that. Yeah, I think that that's, that's one of the wonderful gifts of the book. Um, you know, there's this line from, from one of Beckett's plays, use your head, use your head, you're on earth. There's no cure yes. for that. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, and there's something about becoming a parent that's, that's, that even if you've, you've figured out that you're on earth, um, and you know, that human beings are inherently messy and that what makes them, that's what makes them interesting that you enter into this parent identity or you start that journey and boom, there's this activation, at least in our culture of don't fuck it up. Right. Like, you know, and so the model of perfection or better or right, wrong kind of comes back with this, this power. Yes. Um, And and I, I feel so, so much empathy for that because the stakes are high. It's a human life and, and it's not only just a human life, it's the human that we probably love more than anyone on the planet. And of course we want to do a good job. Uh, but there, there can be this kind of tyranny that I think is exacerbated by the fact that we're parenting away from our communal groups. You know, we, a couple hundred years ago, we would have been surrounded by extended family. We would have had a strong cultural uh, milieu. We would have had maybe belonged to a church. There would have been a lot of decisions that would have kind of been made for us. And maybe they weren't all good ones, but we weren't in this position where we felt like we had to produce the whole parenting ethos out of whole cloth. And and so I, I just think it's sort of bewilderingly difficult, the the dilemma that parents are faced with. Ratcheted it up all the more by being isolated and cut off these last two years through the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this might be a good good place just to bring up a question that I could have suspected at least one or two listeners have, which would really be about me as a father 
doing this interview about a book of mothering with a mother that's trying to address the experience of motherhood, which has been kind of underrepresented, I think you say at one point in the literature. Um, and so, you know, one of the the things I wanted to say really by way of thanks is that um, there are, I have found as a reader, there are so few thoughtful books about what it means to be a father written by fathers that mm. to read, you know, this book was just so kind of soul nourishing, um, despite the fact that I knew that I was not its primary audience. Um, and that, you know, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about, you know, reflective mothers that I've had the, the fortune to have conversations with about parenting and things like that. Um, but also this kind of desire that, that as I trafficked among fathers as a new father, and as I have, I have a five-year-old for these last five years, mm. I kind of wish there was more terror, more fear of judgment, more, you know, like the stakes are high. Um, in some ways, I think the, the lack of really meaningful literature seems to reflect a kind of very low bar for fathering. And I don't think that that's huh. universal by any means. But if you, if you just kind of look at like what the discourse is around fathering and, you know, the good dad or, you know, the dad that shows up for this or whatever, um, you know, the kind of, maybe I could call it something like the call to being reflective, which you put at the, the bottom of the well, that turning point um, doesn't seem to be as clarion. And maybe that's an oversimplification, but it's certainly one that whether, you know, I'm the only dad at playgroup or, you know, suddenly among fathers who instead of being like, this might be an opportunity for me to think about, you know, what's going on within me. It's There's the kind of like, well, it is what it is or life is hard, mm. you know, that kind of shutting down of Ugh. reflectivity. That's really interesting. Uh, wow. There's so, there's so much in that. I, I've worked with some fathers in my practice who were primary caregivers, and I found that, and, you know, it's a pretty small sample size, but I did find that many of them, I think, went through most of the same stuff that I talk about in my book. But I can see what you're saying, that there's, uh, you know, like you said, this sort of low bar. It's like, well, I, you know, I kept the kid alive, you know, isn't mm -hmm. that good enough? And there's something kind of wonderful about that in a way, because you know, all of this parental anxiety that mothers usually take on sometimes uh, both makes her life miserable and also doesn't exactly help the kids because they're so kind of scrutinized and um, fussed over in a way that it can, uh, it doesn't, doesn't help anyone. So that more kind of laissez-faire that you're talking about with the dads, I, I could see how that there could be a, a a benefit to that. But at the same time, well, two things. First of all, I think that uh, it, it, we do owe it to our kids to be self-reflective. You know, I want to get away from this sort of parenting perfectly kind of uh, uh, demand that our society makes. And yet being more reflective certainly has made me a better parent. It's made me better able to meet the needs of my kids. Not like I have done it perfectly at all, but I, I think I've done okay. And, 
And by the way, if you read the book, you will really get that I am not perfect. (laughs) I think I put my worst parenting moments in the book and I did that very much on purpose. Um, But, but, uh, but, but, you know, but I, but I'm better than I would have been if I had just said, ah, you know, who cares? They're alive. The other thing about fathers is that, you know, I think that by not being reflective about it, fathers are missing an opportunity for their own growth. You know, and this very much goes back to the central thesis of the book, that this experience can be an opportunity for real psychological cooking. And if you just think, ah, you know, okay, everyone, everyone's alive at the end of the day, and you don't think about, why did I get so upset today? when he dropped his glass of milk. What what was happening for me in that moment? You know, you, you miss a real opportunity for rich self-knowledge. I love that you craft that, that image of just the glass of milk dropping. Um, because those, those happen all day long, right? The, the kind of I think elsewhere you call it like it, it, it carries too much heat for what it actually is. You know, the, the glass mm-hmm. of milk dropped, but I'm suddenly, you know, boiling inside because whatever it turns out to be. And that becomes the invitation to start being curious. Um, and it doesn't have to be some sort of, you know, cosmic alignment, um, but just these, these small if you choose to look at them as such invitations every single mm-hmm. day, like, why is that happening? That, that doesn't make sense. That seems out of proportion, which becomes something that might be, um, might be a way in, might be a way mm. towards illumination. And, um, and, you know, one of the things you do in the book is you, you craft these stories, the ones you tell from your own life. And um, I will not share bad parenting stories of the author. If you want to do that, you can, but <laughs> let me just say you, you bring yourself across as very human and thus relatable um, rather than someone speaking to us on a mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so there are these stories from your own life and these images that you bring up that I think make the invitation of the book very, very accessible. Um, but then much of the book is made up of these stories, these fairy tales from around the world. Um, so I want to make sure that listeners have a, an understanding that if they open the book, you know, a half to a third of it is going to be stories that have existed for hundreds of years. Could you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about you know, why they're in there, what mm-hmm. work they're doing? Well, uh, fairy tales are really ancient. Many of them are thousands of years old, and they've been told and retold and retold. So they've gone through this kind of process of purification. So they're kind of a psychological essence. They're kind of a our psychic bones. They're this storehouse of universal patterns. And we presume that most of the tellers of these stories were women, by the way, even though they were often collected, not often but not always, collected by men. They're, they're really women's wisdom. And uh, they were not originally children's stories. They were stories for adults. And they're, they're not uh, tales in the sense of, you know, each one has a, a moral or a meaning that you're supposed to take away so much as uh, profound little stories that encompass uh, 
critical psychological dynamics that are very subtly expressed. So Jungians love fairy tales because they're considered to be archetypal material along with myths and religious imagery. These universal dominance that, 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 are, that are the psychic inheritance of us all. And, uh, you know, I also, I, I, I adore fairy tales and, and I find that they, they do help me think about what's happening with me, what's happening with my patients and they're beautiful. They're just so beautiful and, and truly magical. So, you know, one of the reasons why Jungians use fairy tales in, in therapy or think about fairy tales in a therapeutic context is because once we can see ourselves in these ancient universal stories, we're not alone anymore. We're, we're connected with something eternal. We're connected with something fundamentally human. And it, in and of itself, that is a healing experience. So uh, let's see, you know, for example, there's this uh, story in there um, called The Twelve Witches, and it's about this woman who's up late at night working. And I kind of imagine, you know, when you've got little kids, you finally put them to bed, and then you still have to do the dishes or, you know, pick up the house. And you're tired, and you're resentful, and these kind of dark emotions sweep in. So this woman is carding wool, and she's visited one by one by these 12 really ghastly witches. The first one has one horn, and the last one has 12 horns. So that just that's quite an image. And they, they put her under a spell. And when we're really angry at our kids, it can actually feel like we're under a spell. Boy, that is really my experience. It's like you've lost yourself for a minute. And the kids suffer as a result. I think the I forget if the witches drain their blood or something, but it's it's bad. <laughs> and the woman has to figure out how to get rid of the witches. She has to get rid of them. She's able she's um, able to do that with help from the spirit of the well. This is a story from Ireland, and wells play a very important part in that culture. There. Are, they're sacred and they're kind of a portal to another world of feminine wisdom. And with the spirit of the well's help, she gets rid of the witches and then is able to protect her house against them. So I use it in the book to talk about parental rage and uh, how it can sweep over us and its potential harms and, uh, and maybe even what we can do about it. But it reminds us that this is a universal and very human experience. So I'm curious, when you are working with a client, is there a moment where you might just stop the conversation and say, let me tell you a story? Once upon a time, <laughs> there were 12 witches that, vi- I mean, is, does that, is that a way you know, that a Jungian might operate? Okay, let let me um, answer that in in with some complexity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to refer to this research about uh, emotional granularity, which has shown that the more precisely we can name our feelings, uh, the more contained we feel, the less distress we feel. So it's one thing to say I'm. 
I'm depressed. You know, everyone comes into therapy saying, I'm depressed, right? And you're like, well, what does that mean to you? What, what's actually going on? And, you know, someone who says, well, I just, I feel a little blue or I feel melancholic or I feel wistful. It's much more precise. And, and so we're really with the experience in that moment rather than this kind of superficial story about it. So a lot of therapy, at least the way I work, at least the way I think most depth-oriented psychotherapists work, it's about formulating something that is not quite yet known. So it's something on the edge of conscious knowledge, but we don't quite have words for it yet. And a lot of what I'm doing when I'm working with someone is trying to help that person find words for that, which is just on the cusp of being able to be known. So fairy tales, well, really, I want to say metaphors in general help with that. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm always, my intuition is often generating metaphors that I'll offer to someone. So for example, someone last night was talking about, um, a struggle with a child that that uh, she was struggling with her kid, and then she sent her husband up, and uh, the husband resolved it very quickly. <laughs> and she was feeling sort of inadequate about it, and I said, "Well, that's like when you're trying to, you know, unscrew the lid on a jar, and then you hand it to someone, and they open it right away because you've done all the work." <laughs> and you know, she laughed. She said, "Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking about." But, but it it um it's uh. You know, those kinds of metaphors are really powerful because they help us know something really in an embodied way, not just an intellectual way. That's 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 a, just a little mini example. But 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 um, metaphors sort of throw themselves up to me a lot when I'm in session with someone. And sometimes they're they don't resonate. But but when they do, they're really powerful. So I see fairy tales as like another cache of metaphors that are particularly rich. So yes, sometimes I'll be sitting with someone and I'll think, oh my gosh, that's just like the moment in this fairy tale when this thing happens. And I'll say, right. So in the fairy tale of uh, Prince Lindworm, you know, thus and such and thus and such happens. And, you know, maybe it resonates for them and maybe it doesn't, but for a lot of people, I've given them something. They can then, they often go home and they say, yeah, I looked that story up on the internet and I was reading it. And, and it's something that then you can kind of carry around with you. It's a whole image of your psychic situation. And that gives you a powerful way to relate to it. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I think about metaphor from a as a practitioner and a writer, and there's a similar idea. Um, sometimes it, there's a book called Metaphors We Live By. Sometimes they're called constitutive metaphors. But the like cognitive linguistic argument is that the the metaphor comes first, and the analytic understanding comes second. Yes. But there are these deep metaphors. They're sometimes called, and that's actually the base way on which human beings apprehend. And mm -hmm. then they build an, underst an analytic understanding based on what the metaphor informs. Um, but it's not the other way around. It's not, let me find a good metaphor for that. Mm -hmm. It's the metaphoric image or taken larger, the story is what creates the kind of logistical or analytic understanding. And if you can work with the metaphor, that's the deep change. Um, yes. And, and, uh, 
you know, to, to build on that, I, I would say that, you know, the, the metaphoric understanding is implicit or intuitive. It's sort of immediate. We grasp the whole situation. Being able to then kind of transfer it into this realm of, uh, you know, kind of conscious language, being able to kind of pin it down and name it is a really powerful um, kind of um coagulating function that that shifts things because then we can you know once you know something and you can name it and you've got it pinned down you can have a different relationship with it you can think about it you can write about it you can talk about it differently you can hold it in your hand and turn it around and and so this linking between implicit knowledge of something and explicit knowledge. I mean, in some sense, that's the whole heart of the artichoke of depth-oriented psychotherapy. Yeah. Because it, it, it creates, it, it changes this implicit knowing, which is, which is wonderful and so valuable, but it, it I'm, not, I'm not trying to overprivilege the explicit, but once it's explicit, we can we can have a relationship with it and we can reflect on it we can stand apart from it a little bit and that creates that ability to reflect on it and that creates space for change yeah that that makes sense and i'm sure you've seen this play out time and again in your practice i have absolutely and in myself well, you have been very generous in the book and in this interview in talking about and placing yourself as a journeyer um, and not someone, you know, in, I think there's some famous cyclonic phrases like the one who knows the answers or something like that. <laughs> Maybe that's Lacan. Um, so I'm curious, you know, you were talking about emotional granularity and, you know, the idea of you're formulating something that's not quite yet known. Um, it's always fascinating for me after a, an author has written a book, which is a journey in itself. And, you know, yours began when you're, you said we, one of your children was two and then one was just born and you kind of wrote the book throughout their coming of age. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if, if, where are you at your point in the journey? If that's something you'd be interested in sharing, you know, what are yeah. you formulating that's not quite, yet known you've taken this <laughs> this journey through the book that's called motherhood and here you are you know like all of us still you know moving into a shadow trying to figure out what's there um, mm -hmm. you know uh so i did start thinking about these issues when my kids were very very small and i was thinking about them and reading about them and i ran some workshops for mothers for a little while and then i wrote my thesis on this topic and then i graduated from training and started trying to turn this into a book and that was about a 10-year process and my kids now are um 17 and 19 so, uh, and the book came out actually the day after my son's 17th birthday, my younger child. So, you know, it's been a really, it's been a really long process and in some way it's been so wonderful. And, you know, I am at the end of the kind of active parenting years here. Uh, not, not that my job is done, but it's, you know, substantially different than it was say 10 years ago. And, um, one of the things I find really interesting is the way that writing the book has helped me metabolize my own experience of mothering, 
When my kids were little, I assumed that their departure would be just incredibly devastating. And, um, you know, I, I find they are getting ready to kind of fly the coop. I'm obviously have complicated feelings about that. And, and yes, there's a lot of sadness, but, but somehow I feel really at peace with it too. And I think it's, it's partly because I, I wrote the book, you know, we moved last January and we moved out of the house in which they had been, I mean, we'd lived there since they were tiny and I thought, again, that that would be really difficult emotionally for me to leave this house where all of these incredibly important things had happened. And I, I didn't feel that sentimental about it. And I, again, I think it's because I, I did so much work around formulating, I suppose, all of the changes that happened in me um, that it, it felt you know, I felt, I felt sort of free, free, free to leave, not, not without appreciation. And of course, some, some sentimentality and tears, but it wasn't a torturous process. So in in some way, the timing of this book was so good for me, because I I feel sort of set free from uh, feelings of, you know, intense feelings of loss or regret or anything like that. As I'm moving into my next chapter and my children are moving into their next chapters, which are very exciting and wonderful. And I'm, I'm thrilled for them. Uh, but, but yes, I suppose the new question is sort of like, and now what? Hmm. And that there is a lot to chew on there. If your next chapter includes writing more book chapters, I want to extend a warm invitation to come back. I've so thoroughly enjoyed having the chance to speak with you. Well, thank you. It's been it's been a lot of fun. And yes, there are some new books in the works. So I'd love to come back. Good, good. Thank you very much, Lisa, for being on the New Books Network. Thank you. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Lisa Marciano, author of Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself, here on the New Books Network.